We left off at the end of last class talking about um, database interaction, the concept of logical units of work, and the idea of being able to roll back a database sequence should we uh, wish to or need to in the logic of our program. And there really was just one concept left at the end of that presentation that I, I wanted to discuss here. And that is uh, this idea of suppose we get to the end of a logical unit of work and we know that we don't want to roll things back. Or perhaps we see a sequence like this where we would have a logical unit of work and then later on in the program we would have a logical unit of work and then perhaps in my hypothetical example we would have a third logical unit of work and the idea is we're checking all throughout this to make sure everything is good and we conclude this logical unit of work block and we're good to go. So what do we do in that situation? we issue the database command commit work. And commit work will essentially close this logical unit of work block and then allow us to proceed to the next one. Now my question for you is, why do we need to go to the effort of committing work here? Why not just keep on forging ahead into the second logical unit of work block? Yes? Exactly. The idea is maybe while I'm in this logical unit of work block, I encounter an error. I need to roll back. But uh, this one was good. I don't want to roll back this one. So by issuing the commit work statement, all of this is now secure. And so if I wind up having to roll back here or hypothetically roll back here, this is protected and this work is not rolled back. The key here is for you as a developer to think about what goes in each of these bundles of logical units of work. In your homework assignment, I gave you a set of table maintenance to do. Change the name of this uh, travel agency, delete this travel agency. And in all of that, you were working with an internal table. But imagine you were doing that in the context of a database table. And the structure was such that you wanted to only do the first two things if you could do both of them. And then the third thing you wanted to do kind of as an independent entity. Well, those first two things would be a logical unit of work. You would check for success. You would roll back if necessary, or if not, you would commit work. And then you would proceed into your next logical unit of work. A logical unit of work could be one database interaction or it could be a bundle of database interactions. Questions? Yes, sir. I could see that as being very typical. And the answer to that is, that's where you as the developer are going to have to decide how to structure your conditional code. And where you put in the tests, and what you test, and the actual sequence of events. Absolutely. Yes, sir?
I don't know that I would say select statements because selects relate to pulling things out. We're talking more about, about inserts and updates and, and modifies. Okay? And deletes. Then you would, you would do the first one, check for success. Do the second one, check for success. Do the third one, check for success. Do the fourth one, check for success. And at any point, if you don't have success, you would roll back. And then if you got through all four of these without encountering an error condition, then you would commit work. So if you think about the logic associated with that, we may be looking at some kind of nested conditional code. Because you, what you've got to be careful about is maybe you actually have this sequence, an insert followed by an update, followed by a modify, followed by a delete. Well, if this succeeds, but then this fails, then at that point, I probably don't even want to try these other two things. But I don't know. That depends on you as the developer understanding the logic of what it is that, that you're trying to do. Keep in mind that the big difference between rollback and addressing this issue by way of a message statement is message statements, uh, when you issue a message statement of type A, um, it kills the program. It does the rollback and kills the program. So it may well be that after every one of these tests, or after every one of these uh, database interactions I test, and if I encounter an error, I issue the appropriate message and terminate the program. And therefore, I know if I've gotten to this point in my code and I've checked all of this and not had a message issue which terminated the program, then at this point, I can issue the commit work statement and, and reinforce that those are, in fact, done. Yes, sir? I could. You could. Um, you could do the insert and then commit the work. You could do the update and then commit the work. You could do the modify. And the merit of what you just said is if when I do the modify, if I have an error condition and I issue a message of type A to terminate the program, then if there was any part of the modify that succeeded, it would be rolled back. But the other things that I committed would not be rolled back. So it all depends on what you're going to put into a basket and consider those to all be connected to one another. Sometimes it's an all or nothing situation, sometimes it's not. And that's where you as the developer kind of just have to think through the logic of that. Okay? Other questions? All right. Well, we are now at an important milestone in our time together, and that is we are getting ready to start into our discussion of object-oriented programming. Let me just explain to you a, a little bit of the background of this, some of which I have on the slides and some of which I do not. The original version of ABOP was procedural, and that is, for the most part, what we have been using thus far this semester although we haven't necessarily been using the original syntax of ABOP, we have been taking advantage of new statements and things that have been introduced subsequent to the first generation of ABOP. But as programmers developed increasing skill in programming, 
And as best practices continued to emerge, the concept of object-oriented programming came to uh, be recognized as a superior way of, of writing code. Um, and that's kind of my, my first point here. Object-oriented programming is considered superior to procedural programming. Now the question is, why is that? And maybe you've never thought along these lines. Maybe you have, and so this will be a bit of a repetition for you. But, but let me just kind of uh, set the stage for you here. Because a lot of veteran programmers have written a lot of programs in procedural programming languages that run just fine. Now all of a sudden, they are being told object-oriented programming is better. So why is it better? What, what makes it better? Well, if you think about most procedural programs you have written, including the ones that you've done this semester, in your program, you create data objects. You know, we might call them variables. We could call them a wide variety of different things. But we create these data objects, these variables, in our program. And then we have code where we manipulate the data. And so, you know, this might be an integer. And so down here in my program, I'm writing some code where I'm manipulating that integer. One of the other data elements might be a structure. And so I'm writing code to fill up that structure and otherwise manipulate that structure. But what we have here is a disconnect. We have the creation of the data objects, and then we have the creation of the code that works with the data objects. And they're put together for the sake of this program that I'm writing, but apart from that, the connection is, is somewhat loose. Additionally, one of the things that developers try to practice as a best practice is the concept of code reuse. Well, if I have a large procedural program, let's say this program over here is 500 lines long, and it has logic in it that I want to reuse in another program that I am writing, it becomes somewhat challenging for me to do so. And maybe you've done something like this before, where you call up an old program, and you're copying and pasting lines of code from one program to the next. And you have to be careful to rename the variables to what you're calling them in the new program, and making sure that you copied the right things and the logic works and all. It's not really conducive to us being able to easily reuse this. Well, fundamentally, what object-oriented programming says is these things should not be disconnected. And instead, what we should be thinking of is creating these entities that bundle together both the data and the manipulation of that data. And we create these blocks that we can then pull out of one program and reuse in other programs in the future. And the reason why this works so well is because when you get right down to it, a lot of times you're doing the same kind of thing from one program to the next, to the next, to the next, with just some of the specifics changed, but the fundamental uh, code itself doesn't change. 
For example, this semester, we've done some manipulation of things related to internal tables. One of the things that we have seen is that when you have an internal table, oftentimes you need to fill that internal table with data that's found in a database table. So the filling of an internal table with data from a database table is something that we do over again and again and again and again. What other kinds of things do we do with internal tables? We add new records to them, we delete records from them, we modify records in them. Those are all primitive operations on an internal table that we may do hundreds of times scattered throughout many, many programs. So that being the case, why well, think in terms of every time I want to do this in my program, I have to write the code to do that from scratch. Why not create this idea of a bundle where we could specify certain things like, okay, this is the database table that I want it to be tied to, fill my particular internal table with data from that table, and then our manipulations of inserting, deleting, updating, and so on are the same kind of code that we write over and over and over again. So what object-oriented programming does is it says fundamentally this separation between data and manipulation is something we should try and avoid. And instead, we should think in terms of building these bundles that put together the data and its manipulation. So that's the idea, and that's why in many organizations they are working very hard to stamp out procedural code. The challenge with that is there's a lot of developers that started programming during, during an era when procedural code was the way they were taught to develop. And it's really kind of funny, I talked to a gentleman who's a head of development at an organization in this area, and he's told me that his company will host training classes for developers that grew up doing procedural programming to train them in object-oriented programming. And he said, first of all, a lot of them just don't get it. And he said, so a lot of what we wind up doing is letting the old timers keep writing procedural code, but then when we have the new people come in, the people like you guys, we, we have them just emphasize the object-oriented programming. And the idea is then as the old timers retire, uh, procedural coding will just retire with them. The other thing that he said is, we'll offer a class and they'll come and they'll work through the class and it seems like they're getting it. And then six months later, we'll announce the same class again and they'll sign up and take it again. And then six months later, we offer the same class again. And he said, eventually, after they've taken the class like four or five times, we have to tell them, um, you know, you probably just don't need to keep taking this over and over and over again and still keep going back to and doing your procedural program. So this is something that for someone who, like yourself, is going to be graduating and going into a company where you're going to be maintaining code, probably a lot of the code that you will be maintaining will be procedural code, like we've written so far this semester. But then the idea would be that as you write new code, you're going to be writing object-oriented code. 
Now, the nice thing about ABAP objects is there's a lot of similarity between the way ABAP manages objects and what you see in languages like Java and C++. As a matter of fact, when people have asked me before what ABAP is like, and I have to describe it to them, I say it's kind of like a blending of COBOL and Java. You have the verbosity of COBOL, which probably none of you have ever developed in, and then when it comes to objects, you have a lot of the same object-oriented concepts that, that you see in Java. Now, because SAP's strategy has always been that as new opportunities arise, they don't ever want to cut off uh, development that has been done historically, code that was written back in the very earliest days of SAP will still run on contemporary systems. So it's not likely that at any point in the future, SAP will turn off the ability to write procedural objects or excuse me, write procedural code. And so when we actually write object-oriented code, a lot of times what we're writing is, is kind of a mixture of object-oriented and procedural code. And in fact, you could write a program that's entirely procedural and yet incorporate some objects into that. And I know at least some of you have done that this semester um, in doing things like I saw one program uh, recently where the student wanted to do some validation with regular expressions. And so in his procedural code, he actually made some object-oriented related calls to make that happen. You can mix those things together um, in ABAP, whereas in other languages, you don't really have that opportunity. The other thing to note is, and, and we have tried to avoid these things already in our coding, but there are things in historic procedural ABOP that work as long as our program is totally procedural. But at whatever point we decide to introduce object-oriented ABOP, those old techniques actually become errors. And so we may see that, you may see that in some of the code you write this semester, if perhaps you're referencing third-party sources that aren't up to date in the syntax that they are recommending for you. What we will focus on over the next few weeks is continuing to reinforce the things that we have been talking about, but looking at them and covering them in the context of object-oriented programming you will find that just like other programming languages, ABOP supports inheritance, the idea of having a parent class and a child class that inherits from that parent. And so we will see that. Um, we will see polymorphism, where we have objects that are in the same class hierarchy that have methods with the same communication emphasis same communication interface and the system can decide at runtime which actual object it should run that particular method on. There is the concept of events with objects. I don't know to what degree we will get into event-driven object-oriented programming, but that is a possibility uh, that is available to us and, and we may look at some of these things. Uh, in addition to that. Now, what I will be doing, and I, I kind of try and walk a fine line in this course where I, I make the 
assumption is the wrong word here. I, I assert the knowledge that everyone in this class has written object-oriented programs before. Perhaps some of you have written many object-related programs. But I also have observed over the years that a lot of students have written object-oriented programs but never actually really understood some of the underlying concepts. So I do try and review a lot of the concepts, but definitely place the focus on the coding aspect of these things. So I bring that up to say, as I'm going through stuff, if you have a question about something I said, I don't mind you stopping me and asking, and please don't feel like, well, everybody else understands that I, I'm not going to ask the question, because I always make the assumption that if one student asks a question, it's very likely that other students might be wondering that too and just, just didn't ask. So as we're going through this, please do not in any way hesitate to, to stop me with questions. So along those lines, are there any questions at this point? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. One of the things that you will see that I suppose is a difference between a professional developer and an educator like myself, uh, professional developers can be kind of, um, they have this worldview that they buy into 100%. You know, it's kind of the whole, which is better, Java or C++. Some people will argue vehemently that question with you and, and assert that one, you know, they'll argue that. For me, it's like Java's good, C++ is good. It's all good, okay? Um, I'm that way about procedural versus object-oriented. Now, it is true. If you were to call up SAP on the phone um, and, and talk to, I don't know who you'd talk to, but if you talk to the people high up in, in SAP and said, okay, procedural versus object-oriented ABAP, they would tell you that the ABAP of the future is object-oriented ABAP. And so they might even make a statement, and I think your book makes this statement, that procedural ABAP is deprecated. I think that's too strong a statement. I think that what most companies would say is, if we're doing new development, we would like for it to be an object-oriented ABOP. But if there's work to be done, and the best people to do it are our procedural developers, you got to get the code written. And so I, I, I do not take as hard-nosed a, hard a position about that as, as many would. Yes, sir. HANA has a definite bias towards object-oriented code. You'll see, though, that unlike, and I don't know to what degree any of you are familiar with the language Smalltalk, in Smalltalk, everything is an object. Everything. Um, Java, most things are objects, but not everything is. 
I would say that to do certain things in HANA, you are going to be forced to do object-oriented programming. But that doesn't necessarily mean that 100% of every code that you're going to write is, in fact, going to be object-oriented. So I would say it has a strong bias towards object-oriented, but it's not 100% object-oriented. The other thing to realize is, and, and this is why a lot of times people that know object-oriented look at people that, that say, oh, I exist in the procedural world, and they frustrate that, that frustrates them is because it's not like it's that much harder to write object-oriented code. It's really more about thinking differently and thinking of design differently. The code that you write, when you're coding up a loop or when you're, you're writing the guts of a program, it's really going to be the same, regardless of whether it's procedural and object-oriented. It's all about, though, how you choose to put things together and how you choose to design things. And, and that's the perspective that I want us to take in this class and, and why I want it to be very, I, I want to take the time to make sure that the things that we cover, people really do understand. Okay. Questions? All right, so let's get started here. And we'll start with a basic term. A class. A class is a definition of the structure and functionality of what will later be an object in a program that we write. You, you could almost think of it as a blueprint for an object. Now, the idea here, to give you an analogy, is in my program, I might have a data statement. And my data statement, I declare a particular data element to be of type I. But I haven't actually put any data in it. I haven't actually used it. I, I've just said, I want a data element of, of this type. If you will, that's very similar to this idea of a class. I define something that I will later actually instantiate and use in my program. It's a more complex declaration than a data statement that creates an integer, but fundamentally they have that in common in that they are creating this element that I will then be using in my program as I continue structuring the logic. When I define a class, at least as we get started here, what we will focus on is this will define, the class definition will define the data that the object will contain, which we more formally call its attributes, and its functionality, which we more formally would call its methods. So a moment ago, when I was drawing on the whiteboard here, I, I told you that one of the things that we might do with great frequency in our ABAP programming is work with an internal table. Well, if I wanted to create a class that would allow me to work with an internal table, uh, what kind of data would I expect to be the data that is contained in such a class. There are two things that immediately should come to mind. What would they be? You may give me one of them. Okay, let's back up. I said that this class 
is intended to allow me to work with internal tables. Okay? So, my question is, what would be one of the data objects that I would expect to see in this class? Maybe a structure in the form of a type definition, but, um, and I get, you know, there's another way, let's set that aside. There's, there's two better answers, although that isn't necessarily a wrong answer. Maybe, but maybe not. A work area. And what do we use the work area with? An internal table, okay? So if my class is focused on working with and manipulating internal tables, then the attributes are going to be an internal table and as we've observed, a work area because you use a work area quite frequently in working with an internal table. What kinds of functionality might there be? I kind of already said this, filling up the internal table, printing the internal table out to the screen, um, adding new things to the internal table, removing things from the internal table. If you will, those might be considered primitive operations that are logical to do with an internal table. Those would be the methods of my class that I can employ in my program. Now, as I write my class definitions, ABAP actually divides the class syntax into two parts. We write a class definition and then we write a class implementation. The class definition contains the attribute declarations and it contains a list of the methods that will make up this class along with their what we call their interface, which means the definition of data passing, data passing into a method and data coming out of a method. In the second part of my class definition, the class, excuse me, my class um, code, I have the implementation. And in the class implementation, this is where I write the code that defines how the methods work. So literally, I'm going to see two distinct blocks of code. Class, and then the name of the class, and then the keyword definition, and then there's going to be a code, and then there's going to be an end class statement. Then I will see an implementation block. All right? So I'm going to come out here to my ABOP editor and create a new program and we'll actually be working with this program quite a bit over the next uh, couple of class periods and, and we'll start with a real simple one it's the kind of thing that maybe you've done in other classes let's create a class for a like a motor vehicle or a vehicle okay kind of one of the classic examples here so I would see this statement class and then I name of my class, which I'll just call vehicle, and then definition. And then there'll be some code, and then I'll see end class. And then there'll be another block here, class, vehicle, implementation, end class. They will show up in my code in this order. Always the definition, 
followed by the implementation block. Okay? Questions so far? So, in fact, well, let's see. I don't know if this would be considered syntactically correct or if we're going to get dinged for it missing certain key items. Uh, no. I mean, we have just written our first object-oriented programming. There we go. Our object-oriented programming. And it'll be beautiful when we run this exactly. Nothing will happen, but uh, we have now written our first object-oriented program. Questions? Yes, sir. Okay. You, uh, if I understand your question correctly, it is, the answer is actually this right here, which is going to be different than what you've seen in other languages, most likely. I can define a class in the context of a single program, which when you get right down to it, kind of defeats the whole point of creating a class in the first place. But when we get started, this is where we'll start. But in the situation, as I understand it, you just mentioned, which is I want to reuse this. Well, the way we create something for reuse in ABOP is we put in the ABOP dictionary. And the way we put it in the ABOP dictionary is it's kind of, and you kind of see kind of the history of, of SAP right here, which is when we go to SE11, Okay, notice what's not here. There's no radio button for uh, creating a new class definition. Okay, so how do we get classes into the ABOP dictionary? Um, we have a specialized transaction for that. Uh, SE24 is called the class builder. And we will, once we cover the basics of creating it in the context of our code here, we'll see how to do it in the class builder. Now, in fact, what I recommend is um, to follow that workflow in general, which is create your class in the context of a program, test it, make sure it works right, and then when it actually comes to moving it into the ABOP dictionary, you can do a whole lot of copying and pasting. And it, it, it's kind of just the easier way to do it. But I, I think that that gets to the heart of what you're saying. So whereas in other programming languages, you might create a whole set of classes and put them in a file and then like include that file or other things like that. And in ABOP, we just reference the dictionary for that. Okay? Yes? I have never heard... ABAP assert that. So I'm tempted to say no, but uh, someone more knowledgeable could probably tell us how you could create something akin to that in ABAP. But it's definitely not, functional programming is not something that uh, object or that ABAP really uh, makes a claim to. Other questions? All right, so we're going to define these classes, which remember are blueprints, and then at some point in the future, we will actually instantiate the class. And so that will be our, our final stop here in the, in the process, or not the final stop, but the step in the process where we actually make a, a class as an object in our program.
All right, so let's get into the actual syntax here. We said that one of the things that you find in the definition is the definition of our attributes. A class definition can actually contain within it the following things. We can define custom types. You might say, well, why do we need to define custom types? What's something that we have commonly used the type statement to do um, that has been very valuable for us? It allows us to create structures. So if we needed, for example, to create some kind of custom structure, we could have a types statement in our class definition here that would define that structure. We could create constants. Now, we haven't done a lot with constants this semester just by virtue of the kinds of programs that we have written, but we could declare a constant and make it part of our class definition. Uh, the primary thing that we will be doing is defining our data objects, our attributes of this particular method, uh, of this particular class, and then defining the methods and their related interfaces. We'll look at the syntax of that in a moment, but ABAP does afford us visibility protection. We can declare things to be public or to be private. Now this is standard object-oriented concepts here, so once again I'm, I'm hoping that this is not new to you, but the idea here of course is something that is public can be seen by other entities outside of the class, whereas things that are private are only available within the class or the object itself. Now, why, why is this a mechanism in object-oriented programming? What does this do for us, having things that are public versus private? It, it promotes data hiding, which is a key element in the concept of abstraction. What's the other thing that it does for us? It, it allows for security. It allows us to exert control over how our attributes are actually manipulated. If you will, and this is a very crude example of this, but it's kind of like having a car and putting a device on the car that limits the speed to only be able to go up to, let's say, 75 miles an hour. I don't know if any of you have ever rented like a, a moving truck before. It's very common for companies like U-Haul and Ryder to install governors on their engines so that people can't speed in their U-Haul trucks. That's why if you've ever rented a U-Haul truck, you know that just getting it up to 55 is like a miraculous feat. And, and getting it to 70 is, is pretty much going to be impossible because there's a device they've installed to limit that. So the whole idea here behind making a particular data attribute private is that we can exert control over it and not allow a data of a value that we don't want to be set for that particular attribute. ABOP introduces something that I have not seen in other languages and I really, really like because it allows us to have security of data while at the same time making our, our objects very easy to work with. And that is we can make an attribute public but we can declare it to be read only. 
which means that other objects can see this data, they just can't change it. Now, if you've done a lot of programming before, you know there, there are two terms that you often see associated with working with objects. And there's either like a fancy term or there's a simple term. We talk about accessor methods and mutator methods. Those are the terms that people who want to sound fancy use. And I think I misspelled mutator. I'm not sure. That looks weird. But that's right. It's, it looks weird, but I guess that's right. Or what we typically call this is getters and setters. Okay. So if you're at a job interview and you want to sound really, really sophisticated, talk about accessor and mutator methods or getters and setters. What's a getter and a setter do? A getter method simply looks at one of the attributes of my class or my object, retrieves the information, and gives it to an outside entity. A setter takes in information, checks it to make sure it's valid, and then sets the attribute to that value. Well, by making an attribute public but declaring it to be read-only, what do I kill off the, the necessity of? I do not have to have getter methods, okay? Because other classes don't have to ask me to see the data. They can see it directly. But the key is I still have security over this because they can't set it or change it directly. If they want to do that, they're going to have to call one of my methods. So it's kind of a nice little compromise here. Yes, sir, Roger. We, we will have that. Um, it relates to inheritance. So after we cover inheritance, we'll come back and introduce that. But yes, ABAP does have that as well. Yes, sir. It can be set through a mutator because th that's one of my methods. So I only have the ability to change it. If, uh, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Okay. So here, here, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. And this is a very, very crude illustration here. Okay. What is this piece of paper right here? Uh, has, a, has an integer number on it. And I wrote it down. Okay. And I'm playing the role of a, of a class. Okay. And you want to find out what my number is. Okay. In traditional programming, you would have to say, please, Mr. Object, tell me what the number is. And I say, the number is 7. And you say, thank you for giving me that information. You just performed a, a getter operation. You got the value from me, and I provided it to you. What ABAP does is this. It shows you the number. And if you want to see it, it's out there. But the key is, you can't change this. You can just look at it. And if you want to change this, you can say, will you please change that number to 84? And I may respond with, sure, or I may respond with, error, value out of range, or something like that. Okay? But the key is, with a getter or accessor method type programming language, you can't see this. You have to ask me for this information. But in ABOP, you can see the information. You just can't change it. So it actually reduces the amount of code that we, we have to write. 
And the reason why I'm talking about this here is in a lot of object-oriented programming classes you've taken before, you probably have been told, make attributes private unless you have a really good reason to make them public. Well, in ABAP, our rule is a little bit different. Our rule is make them private or make them public read-only. Those are equally good alternatives. But be really careful of making them just totally public because then you're potentially opening up a can of worms for yourself in the future. All right, so I think, yes, sir. We have to use a getter with a private attribute, absolutely. There's nothing that says that we can't write a getter for a public attribute or a public read-only attribute. We could write that code. I'm just saying we don't necessarily have to anymore. What's that now? Mm -hmm. Well, because read-only is exactly that. It's kind of like this piece of paper. You can read that number. But the only way you can change it is to ask me to change it. Okay? That's what the mutator or the setter does. Okay? Questions? Other questions? All right. So, within the class definition, if we are going to have some things that are going to be public and some things that are going to be private, we, you will see we have a public section and we have a private section, and the public section has, has to come first. Okay, so in my example, I, I want to show you just a lot of different things here. All right, so we're going to add a lot of stuff to this definition here just for the sake of seeing how the code would work. And so here's the way this is going to work. In our definition here, we would have a public section and a private section. Now, notice, and, and ABOB does things like this from time to time, there is no end public section statement or end private section statement. It's just when you see the word private section, you know, okay, the public section is now over. Okay? If we did not have a public section, then it would be fine to, to start with the private section. But we could not have the public section come after the private section, okay? They always have to be in, in this order. Yes, sir? I have to have those designations there. Yeah, I can't, I can't just leave them off and have it assume anything. I've got to put those designations in. All right, so in, in our private section here, um, one of the things that we could have, let me go back to my, uh, my PowerPoint slide here, um, we could have a type definition, all right? And so um, we could do here types, and, and we could create a, a um, structure here, okay? Begin of, and I'm just kind of doing this on the fly here, um, vehicle um, manufacturer, okay? And this is going to have... Um, well, let's see here. We'll have the uh, name of the manufacturer, which will be type string. We'll have the address of the manufacturer, which will be type string. And we'll have the, I don't know, the country 
of the manufacturer, which will be type string and of vehicle manufacturer. Okay, now, you know, uh, a hypothetical example here, but this shows me making this a type definition as a part of this class. I can do that. And let's just, uh, periodically I want to do this for the sake of you writing things down. Here's a check, and, and we're still syntactically check correct here. So this is now something that is part of the public part of my class definition. I can have constants that I would define. I'm not going to put in a constant here, but, but we could do that. But what I will very commonly see is a lot of data statements. Note this, if I want to make an attribute read only, then my data statement looks just like a normal data statement, but I add at the end of it read only as an attribute. Okay, so um, let's add a couple more things here. In my, I'm going to create another type. Types begin of driver struct. Okay, I'm going to put a line here. And uh, a driver has a name of type string. A driver has an age of type I, and a driver has a, you know, just to make this interesting, years driving, which is type I. And this will be my end of driver struct. Now, to jump ahead a little bit, a moment ago I talked about this idea of mutators. All right? So the idea behind a mutator is, we set values or we allow values to be set for things that are part of our class, but we enforce data integrity and security. Look at the structure which I just created, the driver struct. Somebody describe for me what would be an invalid value that I should never see contained in the driver struct. I should never see an age less than one. Okay, or what were you going to say? I might not ever want to see an age less than 16. Okay, you know, assuming that's like the minimum driver age here. And so if somebody says, set the driver age to seven, I'm going to be like, hold on, something's wrong here. Okay. What other kinds of things might I want my object to make sure never happens here? Driver's years, not less than one. What about the relationship between driver's years and age? Like 20 years driving and they're only 16 years Okay, you can't have more years driving than your age. And maybe the logic's even more than that. You wouldn't expect to see somebody with an age of 20 and 18 years driving experience, okay? So what the, what the actual logic would look like here is something we'd have to determine. But the whole point of this is, going back to my initial discussion here, by putting these things in a class together, it allows me 
to model the data in a way that protects me from having invalid data in the logic of my program. If I wrote a program and I had these same things as individual data elements in my procedural code, I might want to check the kinds of things that we're talking about here. But by putting them in this class together with one another, I can put the code to check the validity of this together. And then if I want to take my vehicle class and put it in a whole bunch of other programs that I would write in the future, I automatically get the validity checking that I will write for free just by including the use of, of this class and, and my definition of it. All right. Yes? Okay, hang on a second. I, want, I am going to make here in just a second. Well, let's do it right now. Let's, let's make a, uh, right now we only have type statements here. Let's create an actual data object here. And so I'll do this, data uh, menu type vehicle, oh, I can't do code completion there. I have to type this out, vehicle manufacturer. And, and now I, I could put a period here and, and be done. And I have just created a public structure called menu. What I have suggested to you is that we alternately could put this in the private section. Okay? And, and that would be perfectly acceptable for us to do. The difference here is if it's in public, other classes can see this. Other objects can see it. If it's in private, they're going to have to get this information from me. But what ABAP does give us the ability to do is to put this here, but declare it to be read. Yeah, read only. Okay? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd have to do that. I'd have to do that. Now what I thought you were asking me was could I have put this type definition down here in in private. Okay? So let's look at that. Could could I have done that if if I were so inclined to do so? And um, where's my syntax check? Notice I, I can't do that because the public section comes for the private section. So that's why I elected to put this type statement here. It kind of gives me, whoops, I think I, oh, I just messed up my return is all that happened here. So what I have done is I've created a type and then I've created the actual attribute of that type and made it read only. Oh, when I did my, I thought my, it's like, wow, I got a lot more code than I thought I had. And it's because I pasted that in there twice. Okay, thank you. Question. Yes, sir.
Okay, if the data attribute that will be used is going to be public, then the type definition has to be in public. If the data attribute is in private, it could